Welcome everyone. And in this episode, you're going to hear from Lisa Hunt, one of our trainers, who's going to be interviewing a great friend of High Fives, Greg Urban, who is a trainer, facilitator, youth program coordinator at Project Adventure over in Beverly, Massachusetts. I believe that Phil does the intro to this, but I will say that um, this is another episode of High Five on the Road, which as usual, we are not on the road. We have the privilege of having Greg Urban with us here at the office today. Um, Greg, I have a lot of questions for you, but I'd love to give you the opportunity to introduce yourself however you'd like. Mm. Well, I'm Greg Urban. I do many things. I'm an adventure facilitator and educator. I'm a musician. I'm a handbell ringer. I'm a boomwhacker enthusiast. Uh, maybe more specifically, I'm a board game enthusiast yeah. and lover of hammocks. Yeah. I often have a crate of them in my car. This is true. Um, I also do other things professionally at Project Adventure. And I do staffing there, and a, I'm a trainer and facilitator and the challenge course manager. Mm, yeah. Period. That's a lot. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at you on social media, and I'm like, just to me, it's the, the time that it takes to learn the board game. I'm mm. all about playing it, mm-hmm. but the investment in learning how to play it, mm. I find myself impatient, <laughs> right? And I can imagine that that's something that you're good at. I try. Um, I have found I was introduced to board games in high school. And when I say board games, I'm thinking of kind of the next layer beyond your Scrabble Monopoly Risk version. We're looking at slightly more recent tabletop games. Um, And my gateway to that was Settlers of Catan. Um, I have heard of that. Classic German game from the 90s, many expansions. I've heard it be many people's gateway games. Got it. Um, And... I got learned it in high school, got my own set, and then have since feel like I'm a Catan evangelizer. I like te- have taught a lot of people how to play the games, Settlers of Catan. And more recently, I've been running into more people where I'm like, oh, I play games. What games do you play? And they're like, oh, I've played some things. I played Catan. I was like, oh, how'd it go? And they say, oh, it was, um, it wasn't great. Like I played once and I didn't really like it. And how can you know? Well, and I think. I often attribute that, and actually, here's a challenge course connection. I put this in the similar vein of, like, uh, the trust fall, and I'll come back to why that connection Mm. makes sense. Um, Because their first interaction was not well facilitated. It was not well timed. And the person who was instructing it didn't do a good job at building, like, a lifelong uh, learner. They were focused on a short-term experience. Um, What this often looks like is the person knows the game. They love it. They say, I want to teach you. They, like, give a very basic rule set and then play the game and don't do a lot of help and strategy at all. And so Mm -hmm. you end your first game with, like, no points. And the person who taught you has won by a startling amount. Mm -hmm. Um, And... My philosophy comes as like, okay, I'm going to teach you the the game. We're going to get started. And then you can ask me any question you want. And I'll be honest strategy-wise for your first game. I won't give you false advice. I'm going to give you real advice that even if it would actually harm me if you did follow this. Because I want your first game to go well so that you'll want to play again. Right. Um, Circling back to the trust fall, right? That so often the trust fall is a little bit, um, I don't know. Not well facilitated yes. in, in the larger 
challenge course world and like mm-hmm. the perception of it from outside yeah. is like oh you, you're on a ropes course oh you'll do are we gonna do trust falls like mm-hmm. well, no we're not and in trainings i've done where i'm training people to use a trust fall i often start by asking who has done a trust fall before and how many people has that been a vaguely negative experience either you've done it you've facilitated it you've whatever it is and more often than not more than half the group that has been some sort of negative experience and that's because it wasn't at the right time it wasn't with the right people it wasn't for the right reasons and it wasn't for that idea of trying to get any sort of long-term effect out of Mm. it it was short term right so it's something people have in their toolkit that it's like all right this is what we do next right so you mentioned and like i said in my email to you we're already like (laughs) we're just talking it's great like i have my list but you mentioned lover of hammocks, board games, some music stuff, adventure facilitator. Mm-hmm. Like, is there a common thread mm. that sort of like this speaks to your heart and soul? Like, this is who mm-hmm. I am as a person. I could see maybe not one, but like two parallel twining and spinning threads. Yeah. Um, one of those is games. And all things surrounding games. So that could be board games. It could be teaching people board games. It's um, initiative games, um, icebreaker games, uh, framings and stories of that through the lens of games on like a low element or a high element. Like yeah. all of those pieces professionally and personally, I think, of yeah. games. Um, and that goes with this willingness to play and engage. And I yeah. found the people that I have made the strongest relationships with you especially have been the people who are willing to play in some ways anything you'll play the the initiative you'll play the the silly game you'll be willing to try a board game yeah um and jump in even if you don't know how it all works you're gonna say i'm gonna try it and see what happens and that kind of spirit of play and with that this line of music and especially ensemble music um I grew up playing piano and then percussion and then handbells all throughout that. And handbells is such a team sport. You need a lot of people to ring one instrument. It's like 15 people sitting at a piano where each person has two fingers playing two notes, right? Right. So all one keyboard, 15 people doing all that. Um, And there's such coordination and great um, like group skill that's needed and some practice that goes into that and some innate ability to – let your own self go to be part of the group ensemble and to fit into the ensemble sound that are so important. And I think those two strands have really kept me going. And more recently, I've started trying to put them together of how do I bring some games into bell life um, and use games with bell ringers and bell ensembles to make the ensemble ringing better. And how do I also then bring music to game life? Um, in that sense, that's where the boom whackers come in, these lovely colored plastic tubes that are very accessible. They're not a high level of technique you need to play a boom whacker. You need to be able to hit a plastic tube on somebody else or on a, on yourself or on the floor and use then games as a way to get to that point of playing music. You said, you just said, let yourself go in the service of others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, letting yourself blend into the ensemble sound. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, like that is, and you know, the youth programming type of work that we've both mm. been involved in, like, isn't, I mean, we talk about leadership, but we also talk about like being part of something bigger. And that, mm-hmm. that just struck me that to me was where 
in what you just said sort of brought me back to your you as a facilitator. Hmm. And so let me go back and ask you to introduce yourself a little bit further. So I met <laughs> you um, in April of 2014. Mm-hmm. We were both at Project Adventure as full-time folks. I'd been there a little while. You were, this was your first day. Day one. And you were there to take your um, internal level two exam, a three-day pretty thorough exam. Mm -hmm. And my first impression of you as a recent college graduate Mm -hmm. was that your thinking was very flexible. Hmm. Oftentimes I'll meet somebody who's got a degree from a four-year college where they specialized in a challenge course. And it's like, this is the way that's, (laughs) that's normal, right? You grew Mm -hmm. up in a certain environment and that's Mm -hmm. how you sort of speak the language. And you had a way of seeing gray, like, Mm -hmm. all right, this is how PA does it. This is how Oregon state did it. This Mm -hmm. is, and you could sort of put it together with your own instructor preference. That mm. was my immediate impression of you and sort of why I was drawn to you as a technical mm. person. Do you identify with that assessment? Do you see that? I do. And I don't think I've ever heard it put that starkly in such a clear way, but that totally makes sense. So what allows you, like, so was Oregon State where you got most of your challenge course experience? hmm yeah, I mean, I had some participant like experience as a participant in high school. Actually, back in middle school, my high school was fortunate enough to have a whole adventure ed gym and adventure education oh, I didn't course, know that. which I ended up taking the same course twice, junior and senior year, and had a rock wall and a static course and a dangle duo, and we also did like canoeing skills and archery and all this stuff. Um, actually, speaking of the intersection between games and music um i had to miss the big final camping trip weekend trip both times i took it because oh. i was in music and it was like the final concert weekend oh got it and so i like missed technically 40 percent of my grade i had to do like a some makeup stuff right um yeah so that was like participant experience and then as i'm in college there was an outdoor rectory at oregon state but not um, like challenge course focus. So I actually, okay. that was my summer job. Like my student job was through the recreation center was where the the challenge course was housed under. So you um, came in first, like from a, like income perspective, not like as a studying that as your major as an engineering perspective. I was going to be an engineer. Wait, well, okay. Can you say more about that? <laughs> yeah, sure. I, I did not know this. Um, I started as an electrical engineer at Oregon state, um, did about a year of it and decided it was not for me. Um, my mother joked that I was like Tigger where, you know, Tigger says, I like everything. And then say, well, I like everything except for this and everything yeah. except for this. And yeah. so I started engineering. I ended up changing my major five times in college. Um, and went through a couple other versions, including forestry. Um, please do not ever ask me to identify trees. I, that okay. is part of the reason why I was no longer in forestry. I did yeah. not do well in dendrology at all. Um, and then found the challenge course kind of in all of that. I was like, this is great. Let's let's see where this can go. And so I ended up with a communication major and degree. Um, Got it. And through all of that, I was doing challenge course and like adventure. They call it the Adventure Leadership Institute. So there right. was some trip leading and some challenge course involved in that um, that I was involved in. And then also very heavily involved in music. Once again, as a non-major, another great thing about Oregon State is they let anyone into their music d- degree if you can get into it. That and, is special. Um, so I was playing in percussion ensembles and in the wind ensemble and started the handbell choir and like dragged people in to play bells <laughs> for <laughs> every Sunday night from like six to eight thirty and made like cookies to bribe them oh there and then shame them if they didn't show up. It was a whole, it was a whole thing. Um, but 
So those two things of like this music world and this challenge course world in college, it felt like they were a little bit at odds because they were definitely fighting for time. Right. Um, and neither of them were sort of meeting your academic exactly, goals. Yes. Um, that was the other joke that my mother made was that I uh, majored in uh, um the words escaping me. Extracurricular. Thank you. Yes. Majored in extracurricular activities. I mean, um, it worked out. Exactly. Exactly. I ended up doing the, the extracurricular thing. Though the communication degree definitely has helped me in, yeah. in my facilitation and my sure. group study work, but the focus was always to do challenge course things. Got it. So, so when, so to bring the conversation a little bit into focus around adventure and facilitation, how, what were some of the early concepts then, maybe as a college student, maybe as a high school student, where you sort of got the sense of like, this is what a facilitator means, or mm. I could see myself as this person, mm -hmm. or this was a person who I can't see myself mm. as. You know, mm -hmm. for some of us, it's defined in the affirmative. For others, mm -hmm. it's more in the negative space. So when did, when did that become something that you thought of as inside of you, mm -hmm. part of you? Um, I think that was with my interaction with my then boss at Oregon State, Mark Belson, who's still there, still doing good things for sure. Um, and he had, he had the rec degree and was the, the charismatic facilitator, um, like big presence in front of a group, total fun, loving, willing to be a bit goofy yeah. um, and a bit silly to really pull people in in that way. Um, and great trainer of like new facilitators, a lot mm. of structure and feedback around activities and debriefing and reflection and a good focus on that whole, the, the experiential learning cycle and not just the, here's the technical skills or here's just an activity, but let's right. tie it all together. Yeah. Um, and I saw some of myself in him or him and me, whatever mm -hmm. you want to phrase that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so could see my, that was maybe the first spark of like, oh, I could see myself doing something like this yeah. of facilitating. Um, and then got a chance to go up to Synergo, which is yeah. a professional vendor member out of Portland, Oregon, where I actually got my first level one, um, my PCL one. Yeah. Um, and that was my first interaction with people who had, had not also been trained by Mark to got it. Uh, do all this challenge course stuff. And I was testing for my level one and on the same day as everyone else was doing their level two. And seeing the skills they were doing, I was like, oh, man, I really should have just gone straight for my level two. Like, I, the where I was in my growth, was, I was definitely ready for it. Yeah. Um, so there was a little confidence boost and validation coming mm. from that. And then just meeting these other people who were challenge course facilitators and doing this in a professional space. It's like, oh, this is definitely possible mm -hmm. to do. And having this great sense of community. I show up on this Friday morning at 8.30 where they've all been there for four days before it. They know Got each it. other vaguely well. Right. And they're so open, like, hey, come, like, come join our conversation. Let's go play a game. Let's, like, before anything even started, we just went and played a tag game in the, in the yard because we wanted to. And it was just the fun thing to do. And I can see that, like, <laughs> the way you describe yourself and the way I know you of, like, just completely fitting in there mm. in a moment like that, mm -hmm. you know? And so, um, this brings me to a question that I actually did have on the list, <laughs> which none of the previous ones we did. Um, are there things that you were taught or experienced that you didn't quite get or believe that now that you've had all these years in the field that you're like, oh, I totally get it. Or like, I understand this better. And now I have my own perspective on it, for example. 
Yeah. And I think that comes up for me in looking at universal programming, mm. which can also be looked at as, as accessible or inclusive programming. Sure. I think all those words come with different meanings to them. Mm-hmm. Slight, there are slight variations, but they're sometimes really important. Um, and looking at my, like when I was first learning my base set of activities, I was always running. And then like the, the quick conversation of, okay, how would I adapt this activity to a group who has a different need than, right. than what I might you know, normally see. Yeah. And both of those things, both those some important words in there of how do I adapt, right? And how am I taking this main thing and changing the fundamental part of it in some way so that it fits in with a group right. that has different needs. Um, and now I feel like I'm always on the hunt for what's a good activity that is inherently universally accessible to all different act- different mm. ability levels. Mm-hmm. Um, and because I think there's, you can tell when something is so heavily adapted or modified from its original that it loses the character of its original. And you're, I agree yes, with that. Right. Um, yep. And there are some, I'm looking at like challenge course elements. There are some low elements that are, have a much stronger inherent universalness to them than others. Yeah. Um, like the whale watch is so accessible to so many different people. Mm-hmm. Whereas like the wild boozy, I have so much trouble coming up with ways to use it. Well, besides like I can do the one way that it feels like it makes sense but I always have trouble like connecting that to larger themes. It's two people at a time really, um, really going for it is a shorter. And I find yeah. some inherent flaws in that. Yeah. Um, so it's like how, so what you're saying is that you're really looking differently at the idea of access mm-hmm. and something being available to someone versus not like, how can I adapt this to make this work for this one person in this moment? But what is sort of that universal concept really Mm -hmm. look like? I think the field needs more of that. I think so too. Um, I've been trying to recognize and uh, kind of check my very ableist privilege in that of being the outdoor industry, being a very able focused. Yeah. Um, and I can cite two different examples of things that have opened my mind to that. Mm, One is yeah, a former uh, colleague of mine at Project Adventure who now runs the program at Southern Illinois University, Rachel Iverson, yeah. um, who has, since she went there, has designed and built a fully inclusive and universally accessible challenge course, high ropes course and low ropes course, and consistently done training with her staff to make sure that they're up to date on the ways to include people who have a different ability level um, so that it's not the one special thing where we're going to put the special people at the special place to make sure that this one person can have this particular experience. Right. It's the, this is the norm of what we do all the time. Yeah. Um, which I think is really cool. Yeah, I do too. Um, the other one is a um, social media influencer of Patty Gonia, who's a, uh, not the large outdoor retail company of Patagonia, but Patagonia, um, who started an Instagram account a year ago and is a drag queen, um, outdoor advocate, queer advocate, um, is such a great, um, like presence of making the outdoors a queer inclusive and all people inclusive space because outdoors are really for everybody. And how mm. do we remove barriers from that? Yeah. Um, Hopefully we can put those two resources Please. that you just mentioned mm-hmm. 
I don't think we call them show notes, but that's what all the podcasts <laughs> yes, I listen to call notes, them show yes. notes. And I think t- to me, Greg, the, those two examples go back to, for me, remind me of what you were saying about challenge by choice. I mm. think it's sometimes there's a facilitation model of like, all right, this is sort of like the standard expectation, but it's okay if you don't meet it. Mm-hmm. We can make it work for you. Mm-hmm. But I still, in even that language, there's this sort of like, this is the standard right? Just mm-hmm. get off the ladder. Mm-hmm. Or we can put a full body harness on if you need to. And I think mm-hmm. what you're talking about is sort of shattering that and almost starting over, mm-hmm. right? So what are some changes that we as practitioners could make to our language, to our mm-hmm. facilitation? I'm totally off script here. <laughs> so we could even like stop recording. But like, like what? Because I think that we owe this to our participants mm-hmm. to to shatter that myth of like, well, this is this is what we expect of people, but it's okay mm. if you can't meet our standard. Right. How do we, like, what are some other ways that we can, as an industry, mm-hmm. as practitioners, as allies, like how can we shatter that? Mm-hmm. Um, I think some of the language you just used um, is very indicative of that, especially the word just, um, or yeah. even just standard. Um, I've been doing a lot of thinking about this and a lot of training of our staff coming into our site of just how you introduce a high element. Um, and that there's a, there's maybe a standard way to do it and there's a better way to do it. Um, <laughs> Wait, hold right? on. Can I just say that back? There's a standard way and there's a better way. And that's the Greg Urban there's way. There's a better way. Proceed. It's not just me. There's, I, I was introduced to this by many other people and has really no, influenced this. Whatever you're about to say, I love it. <laughs> um, but it's it's pro- introducing it as there are lots of options of what this can look like for different people. Um, mm-hmm. And so it, it's not, oh, you could climb up just three steps on the ladder and then climb back down. It's like an option is climbing four steps on the ladder and then climbing back down the ladder. Yeah. Another option is climbing up the ladder so that you can touch the tree and then climb back down. Yeah. Another option could be climbing up so that you are touching the tree, maybe even grabbing these you know, silver horseshoe things. We call them staples. They worked as handholds, as footholds, working your way, wherever that maybe that's three staples up. Maybe that's seven staples up. Maybe that's, I want to touch the fourth one with my nose, like lots of different goals involved in that. Mm-hmm. And then you have two options to come down. That could be a climbing down. That could be a sitting down into your harness, feeling the rope weight and sitting down and swinging down to the ground, being lowered by your team. Mm -hmm. Um, That could, you could also continue climbing the tree to the point where you can step on that cable, grab, I'm imagining the multivine here. Sure. Um, Step on the cable, grab that white hanging rope and use those ropes to work your way across the cable. And that could be, I want to get to one rope. I want to get to the fourth rope. I want to try and high five that other tree on the other side. So you're not, so you're not creating like hierarchy in your language. That's and trying to be really intentional about that. I definitely find myself slipping sometimes um, and say like all the way up. It's like, well, that's, that's still qualifying what up is. Mm -hmm. Um, and so trying to use like the numbers like that of the first staple, the seventh staple, the um, the third rope, whatever it is. Right. Um, and then like once you're on the cable, you're dismount, sit back in the rope, bit lowered by the team. Um, you and I both work for organizations. I think I can still speak about this from a PA perspective mm-hmm. where we can have students participate in a belay team. Mm-hmm. I find that so wonderful. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how that opportunity for you changes sort of that 
like where people are investing their challenge energy? Like, mm. do you feel like that your participants can do a team belay or an Australian belay? Sort of rounds out the different like menu options that people mm-hmm. have to choose in terms of mm-hmm. where they want to put themselves out there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and I think that also varies per group. But I've I've found myself more recently playing with rather than setting a a clear order of okay, everyone has a number one through twelve. Okay, if number one's climbing, number two's on ladder, number three's on the captain, number four and five are first and second mate. Six is you know going through that order, and every time someone climbs, everyone just shifts up one position and has to go into the next role that they're yeah. in. Um, which can work from a like efficiency standpoint right. and almost like a fairness standpoint, right? If everyone's right. going to get their opportunity opportunity to do all the jobs. And sometimes with maybe a slightly younger crew, the fifth, sixth grade, that's really, that works really well. There's actually some comfort in knowing, okay, I'm number seven. I'm going to go seventh. There's not mystery about when I'm going right. to go or, okay, it's two more turns before I'm going to be the first belay, right? right? Like there's all these different right. um, metrics to follow in your head to maybe reduce some of that anxiety. Um, but with maybe slightly older students, high school, college, it's a bit more amorphous of we need people in these different roles. Right. And that's a little bit of like a challenge to the group. Totally. That's throwing some initiative into here of like, we want everyone to, who wants to, to have a chance to climb. And the the rest of the group needs, actually, everyone needs to step up into that place to make that happen. Um, and so that could mean that one person feels very comfortable as the person who clipped in the captain, and they're going to do that for five different people. And right. that's the way that they are valued and feel incredibly responsible right. and amazing. And they're not ever going to leave the ground. They don't want to leave the ground, but they still feel engaged in that climbing experience. I remember my strongest memory of what you're talking about mm-hmm. is those Harvard principles mm-hmm. days that we used to do when you get adults still who do. are school leaders <laughs> who are the primary belayer mm-hmm. and like, that's an amazing feeling. Mm-hmm. It's hard to like keep in touch. Like you and I have been doing this a long time. Like it's hard to remember what that feels like to like have the rope for the first time mm-hmm. and really get that. So from a design perspective, I know, well, I don't know if you would describe yourself this way. I think you're an expert in program design mm-hmm. and sequencing and sort of making things um, unique and original where necessary, but also not discarding things that are working just mm-hmm. for the sake of innovation. What are some things that your facilitation or your program design looks like now that maybe it didn't even Mm. a year ago or a year before that? Because we're talking about five years, six Mm -hmm. years you've been at Project Adventure full time Mm -hmm. with how many delivery days? I mean, your time in front of people is a ton. Mm -hmm. So how is your sort of approach even just in, let's give it a finite time, like the last year. Mm -hmm. What's something that you do regularly now that maybe you didn't do last year? Mm. And what do you think the result of that is? Mm-hmm. Um, the, my, my mind immediately jumps to like two different other people who have said things to me that I think have affected me. Um, mm. One six months ago and one two days ago. Um, yeah. Um, we had a uh, woman do a project for us this summer looking through all of our end of program reports which we do after every single youth program um, which includes each facilitator writing down their flow of activities and so she took all of those those flows and put them in a big massive excel spreadsheet 
and then was able to look back at the year of programming and look at the activities that I did the most often. Um, and oh like look at like gosh. diversity of activities. And I had a surprise, uh, I mean, not surprising, but I had a pretty low diversity of activities. I kind of stuck with the same standard, like six or seven that I've narrowed down that I can mold and adapt in a bunch of different ways and use different framings and use different, um, like levels and, and debriefs and reflections from to get different outcomes from, but you know, on paper, it still looks like the same activity. Um, and so that was one thing of just like this bigger awareness as a youth programming organization of what are the activities we're doing right. and are we falling back on old favorites because not necessarily lazy, but like we know they work. So we're going to keep doing them even if a group has a different need or a different goal or a different sure. outcome in mind. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's one, one piece. I'm like much more aware of my diversity of activities and like the recognizing of the slight rut I've gotten in of, I really should be looking to innovate and find other activities. Mm. The other one came in um, through a feedback form we just put out, but um, was also around our end of program report process, but looking at our cultural bias as we look, as we talk Mm. about the group that we just had on the course um, and the comments we're making and how we're, how we're characterizing a group of students and the words we're using to describe them and how are we recognizing our own cultural bias lens in that. And the feedback was we aren't. And I totally agree that we are not doing a good job of that. So how do you change that? Um, I think someone bringing it to our attention is a great start. Sure, start with Um, awareness. And also a great time for it because we don't have a lot of programming until May. So we have some time to revamp our our end of program process and look at um, ways we can frame that better. We can do more training to our staff about um, their own internal bias and cultural bias with all of that. So Mm. important. That's huge. Mm -hmm. I want to go back to what you were talking about your progression. Cause I think, I feel like we've talked about this on other podcasts here, maybe with the tinker talk, there's sort of, I see this sort of life cycle. Like for me as a facilitator, Mm -hmm. I have like my, I'm new, right? And I have my first few activities that I'm really comfortable with. And then I learn hundreds more because I work with so many great people. Mm -hmm. And then it's sort of like, it comes back around. And I think, I don't hear you struggling. So I don't think mm-hmm. you like need this advice. I think it's important for folks who might be listening to hear that like, it's okay to have a limited rotation if those make sense in the situation that you're faced mm-hmm. with. You know, I don't think there's necessarily something wrong with it, nor did I hear you say this, but I don't, I, that to have things that are your go-to. Mm-hmm. Cause I've also been playing with sort of the idea of like, where does my attention go when I'm facilitating? Mm-hmm. I want my f- attention to go to the people and how they're relating with each other and how I'm relating to them. And if I don't have to worry about how steel the chicken works, it's like, I'm like, there's a lot of things that you can get to that will help people connect. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I, I have this, I feel like I trust your sequence. Mm-hmm. And so it's good to have the awareness mm-hmm. and you might look at all that and then still decide that your seek your opening sequence you're not going to change it. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I just, that might be some, that might be an outcome when you're sort of facing a day at work at project adventure or, you know, in the field for wherever you might be that day, what's one thing that you can look ahead to and be like, this is going to bring me joy. Mm. Like, what do you need to see in the day ahead? You're like, mm-hmm. yep, this is gonna, I love this. And then just know that the second part of that is this or something that you're like, oh, <laughs> I just have to get through that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
not every day, but there I have have taken a special affinity to the activity group juggle and have done many different iterations and levels and done a ton of playing around and collaborating with other people of what, what did you try today? What chant, what like level did you add on this time? How, what can we stack on top of it? What ridiculousness can we do in this one where people are moving around and we're doing stuff with color and people have to be matching color. I pulled boom whackers into it. I've like thrown my phone around as a, as an object, like done all these things with. And so because I'm so comfortable with the baseline of that that activity, I think I get excited because I'm like, what will this group allow me to innovate today? And like innovate with me of like, hey, what do you th- what would be a next level for you all? Or because they inevitably asked, what's the next level? I'm like, well, there's as many as you want. Like, what what do you what would make this harder for you? And they always come up with more interesting things than I could ever do. That kind of brings it back to board games, mm-hmm. right? Does that for you like? Because with like, there's so many different possibilities Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and like choose your own adventure kind of thing. Yes. Yes. I love, I also get like, I get focused on an activity and it's sort of like, this becomes my thing. Like this past summer, it was triangular, uh, no, the full house. And Mm -hmm. I'll tell you more about that offline, but Mm -hmm. sort of like, how can I make it extra spicy? Mm -hmm. Spicy. Um, so then is there is there something about sort of your daily craft where not that you dread it because I don't imagine you as someone who experiences a lot of dread on a regular basis at it least happens. that's how I perceive you but is there something where like if you could get rid of this part of the industry or your job or something and I don't mean like from the organizational perspective mm-hmm. I mean just from our craft that you would feel like more aligned or happier Mm, I think there's this feels like very generationally cliche of like phones or social media or screen time, but like the things that pull people away from being present um, and being able to interact with others. Yeah. I think I have seen some examples of we're in a great state of flow and then someone looks at their phone or gets pulled away to do something yeah. and it like, and then suddenly other phones come out too. It's like one starts and they're all out and you've lost it. And it's hard to get back. Mm. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm totally guilty of doing the same thing and like falling into the screen versus face to face to face interaction yeah. and catch myself on that all the time. Mm-hmm. Well, it's hard too. I think as facilitators, we have different needs for interacting with our technology, you know, and sometimes I can't always role model what I want people. Mm-hmm. Like if I have to look at the radar or, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know, like that kind of stuff. Um, how, so if a uh, Oregon state college student, for example, is mm-hmm. listening to this podcast or somebody who is like dreaming of a job at a PVM, mm-hmm. what, it, you know, it's again, cliche perhaps, but like, what would you tell them in terms of turning that idea mm. of this is fun. I went to camp and like, <laughs> here we both are as perfect. Like this is our, mm-hmm. this is our profession. Fun fact. I've actually never worked at the summer camp. Whoops. I think I knew, I must've known that, but I, I mean, I still love I you. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> I still see there's that language. Still. Yeah. Even though you don't meet my expectations. <laughs> Um, but like, what, um, no, what's what some, advice? Yeah. yeah. Um, if I, I, so on the right up here, I was doing some prep and talking to, uh, Camille about all of this and 
trying to like identify themes for how I got to where I am. Um, and I joked like, Oh, all you have to do is move 3000 miles away with no car and camp on property for two weeks. That's what I did. Um, would not recommend I that to everybody. <laughs> yes. Can verify Lisa was there. <laughs> I did camp in the lower field for two weeks while I had no house in Massachusetts. Um, so I don't recommend people doing that, but I think there's a lesson of being willing to do things like take big steps and to, to do things slightly boldly. Yeah. Um, slightly boldly. Isn't there a fun, like uh, paradox? No, but it totally words, works. Right. Um, and with that, I think this industry, especially attracts people who naturally want to build connection and to build authentic relationship. And so I found it relatively not easy, but I found it easier moving to a state I'd never been to before to a company I had heard about, but never worked for before um, knowing no one in the region to build a network here because the, like my first friends all here were from PA because they all worked right. there and were willing to say, yeah, we'll totally hang out after work and do a board game night. Like, absolutely. You can use my car. Like, I'll drive you to Target to buy bedding because right. I don't have it. Like, so that like willingness to take an extra step and to be emotionally vulnerable in a space to emotionally vulnerable is maybe an extreme version, right? Yeah. But willing to make that authentic connection relatively quickly. I, I think that's see. that extreme. What was the boldness? Uh, mild, slightly, bold, slightly, yeah, slightly bold. bold. Yeah. It's sort of like, like take a leap, but almost like like don't do it part way. Mm-hmm. Like when you came, like I didn't really consider when you came to Massachusetts, like all the things that were brand new. That also probably made you more open. Yeah, to, like you didn't have a pre. Well, this is, and maybe that goes full circle to my opening comment about you, which was I found you very open to ways of practicing. Mm. Whereas a lot of people are like, this is the course I learned on, so this is the way we're going to do it. Mm-hmm. I think that sometimes as a field, we can lead people to believe that you have to be really technical or super outdoorsy mm. or um, all these things to sort of be a good facilitator. And I think that I really want to find ways for people to see themselves as facilitators mm in their craft besides adventure mm-hmm. and the fact that you have this passion for games and for music it almost seems like that's informing you as a challenge course facilitator Absolutely. versus your challenge course facilitation making you interested in music and i think mm. uh, almost if i could re reimagine your words it's like if there's something that you're good at that's who you are as a facilitator. Mm-hmm. Like I, you don't have a separate identity as Greg, the musician, Greg, the game person, Greg, yes. the, like that's all the same person. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Bring yourself into your facilitation. Right. And like in Meg Bulger's episode, which I know mm-hmm. we both heard, I, she talked about how she puts on her like m- uniform. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and on the one hand, I identify you and I both sort of have our, like, you probably have shoes that you wear mm-hmm. on the course. And I like to have my nails done before a technical mm-hmm. workshop and those routines. I also feel like she's as she is so herself. Mm-hmm. And you and I are both like, this is who I am. I'm not going to like set aside my passion or my values that I'm interested in to then take on this mm-hmm. facilitator persona. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, I think her comment is well put. Um. Okay, so I know we probably have to wrap up. I could talk to you all afternoon. Mm-hmm. Um, 
let me end like how most podcasters do. Greg Urban, where can we find you? <laughs> um, well, if you want to come work for Project Adventure yes. in our youth programs department as a facilitator, um, I am currently, and I, as our whole department is hiring, but I'm the coordinator for it. Um, and so look on the website pa.org for uh, slash employment and look at our challenge course facilitators um, page uh, and job description. That is a contract uh per diem job so it can fit around other things and you get to come work on beautiful pristine moraine farm in beverly massachusetts it's truly lovely lisa can attest she's been there it is lovely and my experience with greg is that he'll be interested in your professional development you know not just me all of us it's all the team of three of us of me and josie and i are all interested invested in the people we work with yeah um and besides that uh, I ring with the Back Bay Ringers Handbell Ensemble in, out of Boston, Massachusetts. You can look us up on backbayringers.org, um, see some videos, or just go to YouTube and Google Greg Urban Handbells and see what comes up. It's it's a good time. That's awesome. Um, I'm so glad you're my friend. I'm so glad you're my friend. And that I I was like... I'm actually crying a little bit. I was... Uh, I had so many conflicted emotions when, because uh, I had talked to Phil about doing all of this. And then Phil was like, I'm not going to be there, but Lisa will. And I was like, if there was anyone to stand in for Phil, like Lisa is the person I would not want. I can't say words. I'm so happy that you interviewed me today. We had this good conversation. I will say I did kind of want to answer the duck question. Okay, so I can ask that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so rich is like saying yeah so the control room is saying go for it so um let me see if i get the words right mm-hmm. would you rather fight that's an important word fight, fight. not mm-hmm. like face not fl- fly away on or whatever. would you rather mm-hmm. fight uh one horse-sized duck or 100 duck-sized horses mm. I'm there's gonna, only one right answer. there's only one right answer um I have heard, I know how mean ducks are, and I'm terrified of a larger duck. So I'm going to go with 100 duck-sized horses, because I feel like you could just, like, climb a tree and avoid them, because horses can't climb a tree. I guess you do have to fight and face them, but you could, like, start fighting and then realize it's not going well, and you still have a better evasive, like, runaway exit plan than you do with a horse-sized duck, which you cannot get away from, because they both fly and run, so... I think you've really thought this through. I, I have been listening to this podcast since the beginning and have been thinking, like, how would I answer this question? I feel like that's a lot more approachable of an answer than Chris Danboys, who was saying, well, Did he say about lighting the duck, a duck on are fire? flammable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's Anne Louise who was like, well, I, I would ride with, the duck. I would use my facilitation skills. I love that one. <laughs> when I was in Maine at this at the Chiwanke Foundation, they do it lobster or, or moose. Like a lobster the size of a, a moose? A lobster size moose. Or a hundred moose the size of lobsters. Yes. Whoa. I know. Very New England. Definitely not the giant lobster. That's terrifying. I, I just take I just take moose over anything lobster. Yeah. 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 Um, the other thing that I find really amusing about this podcast is, of course, the outro of oh, wow. Phil's daughter, um, and her like very end of where Phil is so such the great like facilitator father of yeah. the can you do, like the asking like can you okay. do it okay try and then like okay like that gentle encouragement of okay try and she's yeah. like. Happy, 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 happy guy. Yeah, I always imagine she's saying, like, thanks to the pasta guy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a good time. Um, Greg, thanks for being you. Bye bye. Bye bye.
Thanks for listening. And do it again. Thanks for listening. And can you say,、uh, thanks for listening to High Five? Thanks for listening to High Five. <laughs> And then what about thanks for listening to High Five's podcast? Can you do it? Okay, try. Thanks for getting our second pasta, guys. <laughs>